Hello and welcome to Emerge, Evolve, Lead, a podcast for people in recovery from addiction who want to be better leaders. I got clean and sober when I was 24, and then I started my corporate career. After several decades, I left that job and created Emerge Leadership Academy, where I train leaders and coach people in recovery who are ready to step up in their career. My name is Maureen Rosgem, and I'll be your host. Hello, and welcome back to Emerge Evolve Lead. Today, my guest is Charlene Madden. She has a pretty new sobriety date. It's just January 1st of 2022, but she has been in recovery for five years and has quite a story to tell. So she's here today to share her message of hope and transformation. Welcome to the show, Charlene. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to meet you and have you on the show. So first, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your life today? Like, where do you live? And, uh, you know, what do you do for a living? A little bit about your family. Um, I live in beautiful British Columbia, Canada. I am right in the uh, foothills of the Rocky Mountains. Nice. Uh, I am, uh, I would still say a newlywed. I've been married for four years. I am a mom of three absolutely amazing children. They're all grown. And um, I am a practicing Reiki practitioner, and I do one-on-one coaching with women, and I also host a women's empowerment workshop once a year. Oh, I like that. I love to talk about empowerment for women because, you know, how we grow up and feeling like we're just surviving and we're a victim mentality. When we, when we shift that around in adulthood to really own our empowerment, and sometimes it takes going to a great workshop or, you know, working with a coach, it just feels so, so good to finally stand in our truth and our power. You're right. Absolutely. Yeah. And watching people transform. Oh, just love it. Okay. So Charlene, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about your story, your childhood. What happened uh, that, that hurt you and uh, turned, you know, made you turn to drugs and alcohol or whatever. And how did you, uh, you know, cope and finally get into recovery? Mm. Yeah, my story starts when I was about three and a half. Um, I was the youngest of four children. I was born into um, a pretty dysfunctional home. My dad was a um, violent alcoholic. Um, And when I was three and a half, my parents separated. And um, my mom took my brothers, my half brothers, and left the house um, because they took the brunt of the abuse. My sister and I stayed with my dad. But being a barely functioning alcoholic, he wasn't able to look after two young girls. Oh, MG, that seems like the opposite of what usually happens. The mother takes the girls and the father takes the boys. Oh, no. Mm. What Mm. happened? What happened? Don't keep going. Um, So I went, um, my father contacted my maternal grandparents and asked if they could look after us. And my grandmother didn't skip a beat. She said, absolutely. I will take the girls. Uh, she was an amazing woman. She was extremely strong. I always thought she was far ahead for her time. You know, she believed women should get a good education, be independent, have their own money. Um, so as wonderful as she was, unfortunately, my grandfather was a pedophile. And, um, my sister and I started experiencing right away sexual abuse at his hands. And, um, this went on for just over nine years. Um, when I was about 12 and a half, my sister was 16. She kind of had a nervous breakdown because her abuse had been uh, far worse than mine. Um, and it all came out. 
so now I've got another family that's basically torn apart. My grandfather went to jail for a couple months. Um, my grant, they divorced, they had to sell the home that, you know, we grew up in. So kind of felt again, like this, this, my life had been ripped out from underneath me. So, um, I go into high school and, you know, I will backtrack and say, um, when it came out, there was never really any counseling. Like I remember sitting in a social worker's office and, and having her just kind of pat me on the back and say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. But there was no real follow-up. Jeez. You know? So I'm 12 and a half trying to, you know, go through all these ideas that are going through my head and we lived in a small town. So like 2,500 people. So it's like everybody kind of knew what was oh. going on. So I had nowhere to hide. Um, so I go into high school and, and that's such a vulnerable age too. just the, you know, the tweens and, uh, okay. And you're just learning who you are. Yeah. Right? You're, and I, I mean, and I really had no idea who I was. I didn't have any fixed identity really. Right. So I go into high school and I start struggling, um, pretty much right away with mental illness and depression and suicidal thoughts. Uh-huh. And, um, I just, didn't want to be here. I didn't feel loved. I didn't feel worthy. And, um, I started writing. That was my outlet. And I always said that I poured ink onto paper rather than blood because, um, I did, you know, I did a lot of self-harm activities. I started cutting and that's probably why the drinking, um, started and continued for so long. Um, you know, I remember starting to drink, because, and, you know, we're talking at the age of 13, um, because I wanted to just fit in, you know, it was that every weekend, all the kids went out. I didn't want to be the kid that stood out anymore. I didn't want to be the kid that had the story. I just wanted to blur into being the same as everybody else. And part of that blurring is you blur your own thoughts, your own memories, your own feelings of your life. Um, as we know, you know, we drink because it numbs everything that we're experiencing. And I just dove head first into that numbing. Um, so it was, you know, quite regularly, you know, uh, drinking, sneaking out during the week and, you know, drinking with, with friends and um, it just continued on. So as I'm writing, my writing draws attention from my teacher because it is very dark and depressing and, and stuff like that. And uh, I remember getting pulled into the guidance counselor's office who had brought a school psychologist in and they wanted to do an assessment on me. And, and you know, I have a, an afternoon full of psychological evaluation. And at the end of it, I have the psychiatrist tell me that um, we just want, you know, we're diagnosing you as manic depressive bipolar. Now I'm like 15 and a half, 16. I have no clue what that means. And we're talking like, you know, early mid eighties. And, and this is where some of my anchor thoughts come in about it. Don't worry. You're okay. Um, you know, she kind of walked around and patted me on the back and said, but I just want you to know you're going to be okay. And I'm just sitting here thinking, I wish all these adults would stop telling me that I'm going to be okay. Because number one, I don't know what okay feels like anymore. Right. You probably never knew what okay felt like. And I don't know how to get there. I don't know what it looks like. So I don't know how to get there. And I just was like, okay, we're just going to pretend because if we pretend everybody's going to leave me alone and I can just keep existing the way I'm existing. So I just kind of threw myself into school. Um, but you know, I mean, part of you, I'm sure I, I'm not, 
trying to psychoanalyze you, but you were reaching out for help by even writing all of those dark thoughts there. And then they, they give you some sort of half-ass help <laughs> and they don't, and then give you the actual help. Yeah. They just give yeah. you a diagnosis. No, no follow-up. There was no follow-up. It so was that like, was supposed to, to talk, be, come talk. Yeah. So that was supposed to be up to your caretaker to give you, to get you the help that you needed. Did your was it your grandmother now that still was your primary caretaker? Yeah. And she's dealing yeah. with your sister too, right? So yeah. she probably was going through her stuff. Yeah. And her own and her own personal stuff that she right. was going through. Right. So it's there's so, just no support out there for families. So much more today than there absolutely. Was then, not to mention the stigma, stupid that's attached to all of it. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you go ahead and keep going. So you're in what, like you're in seventh or eighth grade, 15, probably ninth grade, 10th grade. Yeah. Ninth grade, 10th grade. And, um, so all I can think of is I just want to get through school so that I can move away because if I move away, everything will be better. Of course. We think geography fixes everything. Yeah. I did that. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And so I get through high school. uh, I managed to graduate barely because at this point um, I'm not only drinking, but I'm smoking marijuana. Like there's no tomorrow. And um, it's, I just, you know, I squeaked through with a lot of help from teachers because I probably shouldn't have. Um, So I managed to get through high school and I move away. I, I move with my high school sweetheart and we move to the city where I am just a face in a crowd, um, okay. but I'm still drinking heavily. Of course. Right? Like that. And you changed. can be invisible. Yeah. And um, as I'm, I'm drinking, I, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm struggling emotionally because I don't know how to deal with all this stuff that's coming up. And I just keep throwing myself into whatever I can find, whether it's work, whether it's, you know, trying to, to maintain a household. We had decided early on, we were going to have kids when we were, you know, in our younger years. So at 20, I got pregnant and had my first daughter at 21 and, and it was a struggle. And I had a very old school doctor who was like, you know, don't, don't worry about quitting drinking. You can have a drink a day. It's not going to hurt you because, (laughs) you know, I was pretty honest with my doctor and said, I drink a lot, you know, I'm drinking six to eight beers or or whatever a night. Again, and and his thought reaching out for help. And, and his thought is, well, you'll do more harm by quitting drinking and going through withdrawal than you will by drinking, you know, so probably validating exactly what I wanted to hear at the time. So I managed to get through my pregnancy and, and everything is great. Um, and luckily I had a, a beautifully healthy daughter. So, yeah. um, but as I'm, you know, trying to navigate the world now of being a parent and dealing with all the issues I have about, I don't even know what a par- like a real parent looks like. Like my grandmother was wonderful, but she was still my grandma. Like, I didn't know what a mom was supposed to look like and adding that mental illness on top of it just made everything feel like I was doing everything wrong. You know, I wasn't being that picture perfect mom that, you know, I always said I was never the PTA mom. I was always the full-time working mom. And, and, um, I met, you know, go up, I went to school. I took a little uh, secretarial course because I thought I could get a distinguished job as working as a secretary and got out of school and I couldn't get a job. And, you know, and what city were you in? I was in Kitchener, Waterloo, in Ontario. Mm -hmm. 
and you know I'm young and not really a lot of work experience and really no confidence or self-esteem at the time right and um I needed to make money I had bills to pay I had a school loan to pay off and I had one of my brother-in-laws his girlfriend was an exotic dancer and she said hey you can make really good money doing this and I'm like well, what else am I going to do? I can't find a job. And I think I felt my worth was tied up in my physical body. You know, the, the abuse just seemed to, to really put that in the forefront for me. And I could go drink all day. Right. Oh, like right, I'm in an environment right. where I can drink. Yeah. Your habit so is supported. I'm, yeah. I was like, this is perfect. This is the perfect career for me. It's like, I don't have any self-worth. So you know, it's not really affecting anything inside, which it was, but at the time I didn't realize it. So I go and I start that career and I did that for six years and it was just six years of a blur. Uh I, you know, I'm, I'm working five nights a week. I'm traveling two weeks out of the month. I'm, I'm gone from home. I'm gone from my children. And, you know, as I'm working, I'm having, you know, I, I always say I got accidentally blessed with a second child because I wasn't planning on having another child right away, but ended up getting pregnant and managed to maintain sobriety through that pregnancy, which was difficult, but Mm -hmm. I managed. So you must've obviously not been dancing when you were pregnant, I danced up until I was four months pregnant. Okay. Yeah. And then I was back to work within two months after, after, um, my husband, unfortunately was not, um, a reliable employee. So, um, which I always, you know, it's funny. I always say I gravitated to the people, the men in my life were never financially responsible because as long as they needed me, they weren't going to leave. Mm-hmm. Right. So I always made sure I got with people who needed me to take care of them because then that was my security. Um, so well, I hit about 28 though. And now I've had another child. I've had a son and I've retired from dancing. I've gone into bartending because that's just a perfect fit. And um, I start really struggling with my mental illness. And I get to a point at 28 where I realized that if I don't leave, Um, or do something drastic, I'm going to take my life and my kids are going to find me. So I leave my house, uh, I leave my marriage, which is basically non-existent at this time. And I, I move in with my mother-in-law and a month later, I'm into another relationship with another alcoholic, a drug addict, and an abusive person. Uh And it just fits into my self dialogue of this is what I deserve. Anyway, the relationship carried on for 13 and a half years. It was not, um, it was not a healthy relationship in any means. Um, did you have the children with you too? I didn't for the first two and a half years. Um, but I had a, um, an overdose attempt when I was just 29. And, um, at that point I was in contact with my mom again, and she suggested I move across the country and start over that life would be better. And this just fit into my geographical running pattern that I had. Right. I was like, Oh, that's where I learned it from. I learned it from my mom. Um, so I moved across the country, thought everything would be great, but my partner moved, ended up moving with me. 
And that relationship just continued to, uh, to deteriorate until 2015. Uh, he moved out, moved in with another woman right away. And then two and a half months later, he committed suicide. Mm. And of course, that just put me in another tailspin. And um, at this point, you know, the, I remember being at work again, I'm bartending. And I remember being at work when it ha- when I found out I had a police officer come in and, and um, he had been involved in one of our domestic disputes. So he knew uh, where I was and how to find me. And he told me about it. And before anything, you know, before going and telling my children that they're basically their stepdad had passed away. My first instinct was I need to get blackout drunk. That was where my first thought went to was I can't, I can't can't deal with the pain. pain. Yeah. I can't deal with this pain right now. If I don't numb this, I don't know what's going to happen. And so I spent about, you know, two weeks in uh, a stupor of being aware enough to go to work. I mean, I always, you know, I always said I was a high functioning alcoholic, you know, I never missed work. I always, you know, made it to work because I knew I had, you know, bills to pay and look after my kids. But when I wasn't at work, I wasn't functioning. And um, about two weeks after it happened, I started to get really angry. And I remember a friend saying, you know, it's okay. Anger is part of the stages of grief. And I was like, no, you don't understand. I'm not angry. He took his own life. I'm angry. He did it first. Oh, he left you to have to, yeah, you know, and now everything. I've seen, you know, not, he didn't leave me just once. He left me twice. And the last time was like permanent. Right. But I was left to pick up the pieces. I right. was left to see what everyone experiences and goes through. And I'm thought now I can't do it because I've seen what happens, but. Cause you'd been I, entertaining that for probably a decade. Oh, or this, more, more. Yeah. 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 We're looking at like three decades, almost two and a half decades. So, I gotcha. so I just kind of stayed in a, you know, an, an alcoholic stupor of being, you know, being numb. That was my, my priority at the time was just to be numb. And unfortunately, um, you can't be drunk all the time, unfortunately for me at the time. So when I wasn't, I had to go through and process all of the emotions. And, um, I realized that I didn't want to be here anymore. I didn't feel like I had a life worth living. I felt I had been, you know, we, we experienced all the guilt of the, the decisions that we make. You know, I felt I wasn't a good mom. I wasn't present for my kids because when I was home, I was drinking you know, and it's like, you can't go back and fix that. And I felt all the generational stuff that I had gone through had just repeated itself. And I thought, how many more generations down is this pattern going to go? You know, I'm just perpetuating it. And I made a decision in October of 2016. Well, I made the decision in September. I had bought a house And I had been seeing a psychiatrist at the time. And I remember her being so excited for me because I was buying a house because to her, this was making progress. Um, But my plan was that I was buying the house in September. I was committing suicide in October. OMG. I had just bought the house to leave to my kids, basically. And um, And how old are your kids at this time? I only had one child at home and he was 16. Okay. My other two, my two daughters had already moved out and, 
And, um, but it was the only legacy I felt I had, right. It was the, the financial legacy. So I was about two weeks away and a friend of mine says, Hey, I'm going to this workshop. Would you like to come with me? And I was like, not really. And she was like, come on, I don't want to go by myself. Well, I always had this thing of wanting to look after other people, even though I wasn't necessarily in the, the better, best capacity to do it. I cared more about people than other people than I did about myself. Of course. Yeah. And um, so I agreed to go. So I went, uh, I'm thinking to myself, this workshops on a Saturday, Sunday, it's perfect because the, the next day, the Monday is the day I've decided to take my life. So I show up to the workshop on the Saturday morning. I've got my hunting rifle in the back seat of my car. And um, I went in and on that Saturday afternoon, I heard three speakers and they drastically not only changed my life, but they saved my life. And um, yeah, everything changed. It started me on like that day, um, that October started me on my path to sobriety, a spiritual journey. Yeah. When you had a a momentary spiritual transformation Mm -hmm. where you, you were awakened and your soul said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to heal this. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. so awesome. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so you then got on the path and that was in 2016. You had a new house now and you, and you, you must've fell in love pretty soon after that. Cause you've been married for or together for four years now. You said it's 22. Uh-huh. Okay. So yeah, it's already 2022. Jeez. Time goes yeah. By so fast. yeah. It was 20, 2017 was when we had our first date. Okay. And, uh, and we got married. It was December. We had our first date. We got married the following August. So So you started on this healing journey. Then you got into self-improvement and really looking at your stuff. You were already working with a psychiatrist, you said, Mm -hmm. Um, probably on some medication too, I imagine. Mm -mm. Oh no. Good for you. It's hard. Sometimes we have chemical imbalances, right? So I don't know. You were diagnosed at 15. It was probably a bunch of BS because you were just being a teenager and your emotions and hormones were all over the place. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So now you are getting into recovery. You're seeing the light, you're feeling ups and downs, I'm sure, but you know, now Mm -hmm. you're getting some tools to work with right? To one day mm-hmm. at a time. Yeah. So what do you think was the key to your success? Like, what are some of the biggest things that really helped you along the way? I think the, the three things, and I always put it down to the three speakers that I heard was the first speaker talked about self-love. And I realized that I had never loved myself. I had been so dependent on other people validating me and my worth that if I could just love myself, that that was going to be enough. And that was my first step, because when you start to really love yourself, you'll set up your own boundaries of what you're willing to tolerate, even from yourself, not just from other people, but the boundaries you're willing to set up on what your, your own behavior you're willing to tolerate. And I realized that someone who loves themselves doesn't drink themselves into a, a stupor. Someone who loves themselves does the work, does the healing and accepts, you know, I gave myself grace you know, and that was, um, the second speaker kind of talked about that she had suffered from mental illness. And she talked about learning, not just to love yourself, but accepting what is part of you. Right. So I really, the darkness, the shadow, 
Yeah. Like I accepted my mental, mental illness instead of trying to fight it and deny it. I went, okay, this is part of my life. How are we going to live with this? Because it's not going to go away. You know, it's like alcoholism. It's always a part of you. It's just, you learn to live and function with it. Yep. And then the last speaker talked about um, how he was um, a, an alcoholic, uh, a pill addict um, and um, had dealt with mental health issues. And while he was overdosing, he reached out, got help. And now he was sharing his story in, uh, in order to give hope to other people. So I was like, okay, I love myself. I've accepted this, but you know what? We can, we can save someone else from having to go through the decades of pain and heartache that we have gone through by sharing a story and saying, Hey, it's okay. I understand how you feel because I knew people suffered, but I'd never seen people share it. So raw and authentically, right. right? You know, like I had never done the, the AA or anything along that, that line, but I knew people suffered. I mean, you know, working in bars, I saw it firsthand of every course. single day. Yeah. But being able to listen to stories about people sharing and not just the struggles, but what they did to rise above the struggles. So my biggest thing, I think, was I found purpose that day. And I thought everything I've gone through has happened for a reason. Did you, you know, start? I, did you go to a 12 step program or no? You just did all your work with a therapist or did you go to groups, group therapy or anything no, like that? No. no. And again, I'm in a really small area. So okay. there's not, um, you know, I, you know, they have like one AA meeting and it was on a Friday night next to the bar. And I was like, this is probably not the most logical spot to have an AA meeting, but it but, probably um, is actually it probably is. I know it was at the Catholic <laughs> church next to the pub I worked at. So, so Charlene, how did you get inspired then to begin speaking and share your story? If you never had those role models, except for that one empowerment workshop. I just felt it was something I felt called to do. Okay. Right. Like I remember, so where, but where did you do it? Well, I, the, the lady that hosted the event, I actually approached her after the event and I said, I, I'd love to sit down and share my experience with you because I wanted her to understand the impact she'd had on my life. Oh, good. And yeah. as I'm sitting, talking to her and I said, you know, I'd really like to come back next year and, and speak at your event. And it was kind of this like, wow, you're making plans for a year from now. Right. Like it was like, that's amazing. And, uh, and I did, she interviewed me and said, yes, I need you to come share your story. So I came back the next year. I spoke on that stage. And I remember saying that my whole goal is if I could share my story and it saves one person's life, then everything has been worth it. And I remember getting off the stage that day and having a woman approach me and say, you know how you wanted to save a life. And I was like, yep. And she goes, you did today. And she mm -hmm. turned and walked away. Wow. And I was just like, you know, I get, and I still, to this day, I get goosebumps. Every I, did, time I got the goosebumps. Tell that story. I know. Yeah. And and my, my reaction was, let's go find another one. Okay. You know, like yeah. It, I, that's it's all a, I was it's thinking. A, it's a feeling you can get addicted to yeah. <laughs> when you're helping others. I know. People. It's like, if I'm going to get addicted to anything, I want it to be helping people and being of service to people. Yeah. So, and so that's what I've done. I've shared. So I started my own workshop because okay. the lady that hosted the event um, she had done three or four of them. And then she was like, you know, this is enough. It's stressful. It's too much work. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, thinking to myself, well, 
that's too bad. I know the impact these events can have on people's lives. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, what about you? Why can't you do it? Right. Excellent. Let's go. Let's go. That's spirit speaking to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So do you have a a higher power? Tell me about your faith. Do you have like a, a no support group? You said you're in a small area, but what, what do you do for that support? Well, my husband is a huge support. My husband, um, he's a recovered alcoholic. He's been sober for over 20 years. Okay. So, um, that's a great support for me. And I mean, and I mean, I give him the most praise for being so patient for me when I was not, you know, necessarily in the best mental state that I could have been in some days. Um, but he's, he's a huge support for me and, um, and also just being open and honest with people, you know, about my experiences, um, Uh, you know, you deal with a little bit of discomfort because when you talk about your issues, it kind of can put a spotlight on other people, but I have an amazing group of friends who are super supportive and encouraging and just reaching out virtually, you know, like that's the great part about the internet is that there's so many, you know, support options available. So I've found some great, you know, support groups. Good, good. Okay. Okay. So you're not alone. You're not doing this just, you know, with willpower or anything like that. You have a good friend community that's supporting Mm -hmm. you and and your family. And obviously uh, that's going Mm -hmm. awesome. Well, that's uh, amazing. I'm glad that you are sharing your story. It is very empowering for other people to hear it. You're not responsible for anybody else's feelings, but every time that you share and you have a lot, you know, it brings your own self-esteem, right? Higher. And you get that validation from just your spirit, just your internal, um, you know, the, the wisdom that you have within you the heart that opens more and more every time. So it's fantastic. So is there anything else you want to share before we wrap up? Oh, and tell people where they can reach you and find you. Mm, Yeah, you can find me um, on Facebook, all the social media platforms, uh, Charlene Ann Madden, uh, speaker and author. Um, Ignite Your Life is my workshop. So if you want to follow that to find out about upcoming things, uh, my website is Ascension Wellness Studio. Um, you can find out about any offerings I do on there. And I always like to leave um, when I'm talking to people is just to let people know that you're not alone in the struggles that you're going through. And it can be really hard sometimes to reach out and ask for help. Um, like I said, I, I learned my grandmother's lesson about independence really, really well and never wanted to ask for help. But whether you're asking for help from your source, your higher power, your God, whatever you want to call it, or whether you've got a great support group, reach out. You don't have to do it alone. And I always like to tell people that if you feel you're sitting in the dark and you, you know, you're scared and you're feeling alone, reach out. And I always tell people I'm available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So if anybody wants to message me on Facebook, because you're feeling like you're in a tough spot, I will if I can't physically, I will come sit in the dark with you virtually because I never want anyone to feel alone because when you feel alone, it's hard to keep all those demons at bay. So just know that there's help and there's support out there and to reach out. So, yeah. And you know what? The sun always comes up the next day. Absolutely. That's That's a tough 
tough time. I mean, there's a lot of people suffering, I think, from mental illnesses and from just loneliness sometimes mm-hmm. of being alone. You know, I, I saw something the other day from um, the folks in AA from the Ukraine saying, please pray for us. We're staying sober through all this, but mm-hmm. we need your prayers. And I just thought, wow, there's people all over the world. And some of them are, you know, having to deal with even what they're having to deal with. I mean, it's just unimaginable. So thank you though, so much for coming on the Mm. podcast. You are a bright light in the world. No more drinking, Charlene. No, no, (laughs) you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, over the last, it was, you know, I always say that over the last, you know, five years of being on my, my journey, it was never an easy decision. Like, you know, you think about quitting to drink and that panic starts to set in. Yep. But I remember sitting down at, you know, the, you know, new year's Eve night with my husband and saying, I'm never going to touch a drop of alcohol again. And I'm having that sense of, and I don't know if it's just me, but I had that sense of it's done. You're done. Like setting it down and going, I'm, I'm not carrying that anymore. Like I've got other things to do and I can't carry that with me anymore and not having, I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm like only 61, 62 days in, but I don't even miss it. That's so good. And I think that's because you made that decision Uh when you that suddenly like really all in, you have a contract with yourself, like, you know, and you just know you're not going to break it. And you have the support of people around you and you know that you don't, even if you do, because there'll be dark days, um, you don't have to be in that dark alone. I love that message, Charlene. That's great. And, And thank you. And thank you for what you do. I always like to throw a shout out to the podcast host because you guys provide an amazing platform and the work that you guys are doing are creating ripples that you'll have no idea how far they reach. So thank you for doing what you do. Oh, my, my pleasure. I absolutely love doing this because I get to meet people like you. Thanks. You're welcome. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends. You can visit us at EmergeLeadershipAcademy.com to take the quiz to find out what animal best represents your leadership style. And until next week, remember, you have so many leadership skills that you learned in recovery. Stop hiding because your contribution matters.